express our belief in God. We don't believe that any man or head of state is a type of God. We can openly pray at any time. We can assemble here in this building without any fear of any police or government agency busting through the doors and arresting us simply for praying to our God in heaven. Prayer is how we communicate with God. This is how we express praise and thanks to our Lord God and Savior. And through his inspired word, the Bible, God expresses his will to us. And we can openly and freely do this at any time that we wish. Land of the free, home of the brave, a country where we not only believe in religious freedom, but we believe in equality and justice. Because of our freedom, we believe that every man is afforded equal justice under the law, that no man should be allowed to be railroaded into a, through a kangaroo court, that, no, that a man is innocent until proven guilty, and that a person accused of a crime has a basic right of an attorney to defend him against those accusations against him. But we look around this world even today, and it's not always the case in many countries around us. In some country, a man is guilty until proven innocent. In some countries, the government is allowed to arrest and imprison anybody indefinitely while they await a trial. And they're not even guaranteed what we would consider a fair and honest trial. Over the history of this nation, we've even fought wars over this idea and belief in freedom, that all men are created equal, that all men are afforded protection under the law and justice. When we hear about, on the news, about somebody in a foreign country that's been arrested and imprisoned for supporting what we consider basic human rights, we get upset. But that's what I want to look at tonight. What I want to look at tonight is a man from another country that was arrested and forced to stand trial in a kangaroo court. A man that was not afforded what we would consider basic justice. This man not only had to face one crooked trial, but a total of six, all rigged against him. But not just a fact of six trials, but all of them back to back in one night. If that were to happen here, the people in this country would revolt. If that were to happen to one of us, I'd hope that we'd band together and make justice, this injustice known around the world, that we would demand that this would never happen to anyone again. But this did happen. Jesus, in his last night on this earth, was arrested and tried in six different courts, all of them illegal and all of them rigged against him. And he was found guilty of a crime he didn't commit and was put to death that same day. Everyone here knows the gospel of Christ. And that we've heard the entire account of Jesus' betrayal and death numerous times. But do we know the whole story of what, and the account of what happened and that's again what I want to look at tonight is a full account of what happened the night that Judas betrayed Jesus. Like any factual account, we need to look at the facts and legal aspects of what took place that night. And to fully understand, we need to look at, the, at all four Gospels of the account of that night, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But I also want to compare that to what took place in Jesus' trials and compare that to Jewish and Roman law at the time. The Jews were governed at that time by the Talmud, which is simply the written law that governed the Jews at that time. But I want to begin 
where Jesus goes to the garden to pray. In Luke 22, 39 through 46. Starting with verse 39, coming out he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became as great drops of blood falling down to the ground. But when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. This account of Jesus in the garden is in all four Gospels. And we see that he is in great distress at this point. Jesus knows that in literally in minutes, he's away from being, minutes away from being betrayed and the start of what is going to be the most crucial part in human history. Jesus may be God in the flesh, as we see in Romans 8, 3, but he is just that, the Son of God in the, in the likeness of flesh. Romans 8, 3 says, for what the law could not do in that, in that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. He has all the tra traits of human flesh from being tempted and feeling emotion and most important at this point, feeling pain. Jesus knows that to overcome evil, to overcome Satan, he must bear the full brunt and pain of the cross. But as we saw in chapter 22, verse 43 that we just read, that an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, strengthening him for the pain and suffering for mankind and that he's about to face, literally starting in the next few minutes. Jesus knows that over the next few hours, he will suffer the pain and agony of the cross for the salvation of all mankind. Now, as Jesus and his disciples leave the garden, he is about to be betrayed by Judas. Now, the Jews, they've tried to apprehend him in the past, and they've tried to trick him, but each time he's over outsmarted them or overcome them or gotten away. But this time, they've stacked the deck. They have Judas, who has agreed to betray Jesus. And they have several Roman troops, and they're ready for a fight. In John chapter 18, verses 3 through 12, we read, Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their own way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of which he spoke, of whom, of those whom you gave me, I lost none. 
Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I, shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me before the high priest? Then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Now in verse 3, we read that there was a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and that they came with torches, lanterns, and weapons. Now the Jews were serious this time. Using an expression we use today, they came loaded for bear. We know from verse 3 by the use of the word detachment. Now detachment at that time was a, was a number of 600 to 1,000 men. And in verse 12, it states the word captain. And the Greek word here literally means leader of 1,000 men. Now I would assume that they didn't use a full 1,000 men to, to arrest Jesus. But from reading the account of the gospel, according to John, they had a bunch of men. They had enough to do the job, and they probably had a few hundred to corner Jesus as he came out of the garden. Now in movie accounts, they, we see it depicts a small band of soldiers who grabbed Jesus. But from this account, we can probably assume they had a few hundred and had the whole area cordoned off so that they could capture him. Now, I've always thought from reading the Gospels that Judas probably thought, you know, just like the apostles, that Jesus was going to establish an earthly kingdom and that there was going to be some big fight, angels from heaven, fire and brimstone, raining down literally hell on earth, and the end of the end and in the end Jesus would sit on an earthly throne. Now, the Jews probably figured something along that line, or at least that there would be a fight. So again, they came ready to apprehend Jesus. Either way, they weren't going to take any chances, and they came with enough soldiers to get the job done. But here's a few problems with what happened. First, according to Jewish law, if a man was to be arrested for a capital crime, he could not be arrested at night. The arrest of Jesus probably took place sometime after midnight, but before 2 or 3 a.m. The second problem with the arrest of Jesus is with Judas being the betrayer. Again, according to Jewish law, if a man was arrested for a capital offense, no one cooperating in the arrest could in any way be associated with the accused. And the idea was that if the accused is guilty, then any and all of his followers are probably guilty also. So as the account in John continues in, ver in chapter 18, we see in verses 19 through 24 that the first person that Jesus has to stand before is Annas. Annas, and why him? Well, he's a crook and a thief to begin with. He may be a chief priest, but remember when Jesus went into the temple and drove out the money changers? Well, the man in charge of those money changers and that crooked operation was Annas. So, and he had been high priest for 17 years, and he was chief in charge of all the crooks and money changers. Money changers would sell livestock or doves that were proper for the people's sacrifice. Problem was, when someone would bring their own sacrifice, it had to be approved by the priests. And of course, most of the time, it wouldn't pass. 
So the person would have to buy from these money changers at an inflated price. And you can be sure that all the money changers and the priests and that all of them were in it together. So when Jesus got before him, do you think Jesus was going to get fair judgment? Of course not. It was rigged from the beginning. So now, here's Jesus standing before Annas. Everything about this isn't even legal according to Jewish law. There's also a third problem with the whole arrest and questioning. According to Jewish law, no Jewish trial could be held at night. The law stated that it must be held during the daytime. And the law stated that the members of the court may not alertly and intelligently hear the testimony against the accused during the hours of darkness. Now Annas, he didn't have enough power to actually convict or judge Jesus. So he's gonna pass it off to the next person up. And his name is Caiaphas. We read that in Mark 14, 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and scribes. Now, this second trial before Caiaphas, who happens to just be the son-in-law of Annas, the man he just got questioned by. Sounds like they're keeping it in the family. But plus, now it's probably between three and four in the morning, and remember against Jewish, according to Jewish law, they weren't supposed to have a trial at night. But Mark 14, chapter 14, verses 56 through 59 say that, so for many, so for many bore fault witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some arose up and bore false witness against him saying, we heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimonies agree. All these witnesses contradicted each other. And Caiaphas, he's got to get this trial moved to a Roman court in order to convict Jesus to death. Under Jewish law, he couldn't do it, nor would the Romans allow it. So, how's he going to get this done? In Mark 14, 60, he, di he directly talks to Jesus, which he's not supposed to do. And Jesus knows this. So Jesus remains silent. Then Caiaphas asked Jesus if he is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. And Jesus answers him, I am. Mark 14, 62 reads, And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. This is a, just fell right into what Caiaphas needs. Jesus is saying he is God in the flesh, which the court sees as blasphemy. And in Mark 14, 63, we read, Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? But, again problem. According to Jewish law, during this second trial, the court is supposed to take an up or down vote, guilty or not. But according to verse 63, no vote was taken. Caiaphas took it upon himself to make this decision. There was no record of any vote, just his decision. Now when Jesus said he was the son of God, 
This is what the Jews needed. Now, because not because they considered it blasphemy, but because they could twist this into treason in a Roman court. But they had to get Jesus before a Roman court to get a sentence of death. But before they could go to the Romans, and before they would hear it, the Romans would hear it, they would have to have Jesus stand before the Sanhedrin. So the first two trials, they're over. Jesus by this time is bruised and bleeding, and as yet there has been no official verdict cast which would condemn him to death. Plus, it's all been done illegally according to Jewish law. So on to the Sanhedrin. Luke 22 records that this transpire, transpired probably around 6 a.m. And Mark 15, 1 tells us it was early in the morning. Now the Sanhedrin, this is the Supreme Court of the Jews at the time. And it was their highest court. And they passed final judgment. So in, we read in Luke 22, 66 through 71, as Jesus faces the Sanhedrin. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both priests, chief priests and scribes, came together and led him to their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe, and if I also ask you, you will by no means answer, answer me or let me go. Hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, are you then the son of God? And he said to them, you rightly say that I am. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Now this third trial was probably the shortest of all. And most likely the Sanhedrin probably had the verdict cast before Jesus ever got there. Now the charge of the Sanhedrin was blasphemy. And like we said or saw earlier, they didn't carry a sentence of death. Plus, no Roman court would care. They simply would say blasphemy was a Jewish problem and that they needed to handle it. So to get Jesus before Pilate, they had to charge him with treason against Rome. And being king of the Jews would be considered an uprising against Roman rule. Therefore, being cons considered treason against Rome, it could carry a penalty of death. Now we read in John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. And it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. See, there's a problem. Under Jewish law, no Jew could enter a Gentile court on the Passover because it was, like I said, it was against Jewish law or they would be unclean and they would not be able to protect the Passover. But it seems funny that up to now it's been a kangaroo court and they've done everything illegally, but when it came time to enter into this Roman court, which would be against Jewish law because of being the Passover, they became holier than thou and stayed outside. So we read in John chapter 18, 29, that Pilate went out unto them. And it continues with verse 29 through 30. It says, Pilate says, what accusation bring ye against this man? And they answered and said, 
If he were not a malefactor, would we not have delivered him up to, to you? I know this was a sarcastic answer by the Jews. Basically, they're saying, if he's not guilty, we wouldn't be here, Pilate. Come on. So in verse 31 states, Then Pilate said unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. And Pilate, he's not in on this fix yet. He doesn't know that the Jews are wanting to put Jesus to death. So the Jews reply in verse 31, The Jews therefore said unto him, it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. So with this charge, this changes everything for Pilate. Now he is to hear a capital offense charge. And verse 33 says that Pilate entered into judgment hall again. So Pilate's having to go back and forth because the Jews, now that they're wanting to follow Jewish law, so now Pilate has to start the interrogation process of Jesus. And this is recorded, and we can read this in John 18, 33 through 35. And he says, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee, tell it thee of me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? And in verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would not my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews? But now my kingdom is not, is not from hence. So Pilate moves on to hear the defense of Jesus. In 37, 38, Pilate therefore said unto him, Are thou a king then? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause I came to the war, into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And Pilate said unto him, What is the truth? So after all this, Pilate finds no fault with Jesus. But when the Jews heard this, they became irate, they became upset, and stirring up trouble. So the Jews started saying that Jesus had been the troublemaker within the Jews and that it all started within Galilee. And this fell, this, this fell into Pilate's hands because he, didn't, he was looking for a way out. So when Pilate heard this, he immediately passed the whole thing off to Herod. Herod had jurisdiction of Galilee and it just so happened he was in Jerusalem at the time. So, on to the fifth trial. Luke chapter 23 records this trial, for what it was, I guess. All the previous trials were a joke, but this fifth trial was even worse. Luke records the fact that Herod delighted in seeing Jesus, mainly because he wanted to be entertained. Herod had heard about Jesus and was hoping that Jesus would perform some miracles for him. But when Jesus wouldn't perform for Herod, Herod and his men mocked Jesus and sent him back to Pilate. Again, this fifth trial was also a joke. And there was no justice, no so even sort of justice up to this point. So on to the sixth and final trial. Pilate 
had gotten rid of what he considered a Jewish problem by passing it off to Herod. He was probably just about to the point he was sitting back and getting ready to relax when here come the Jews again, bringing Jesus back to stand trial before Pilate. But Pilate didn't want anything to do with this trial of Jesus. He had found no fault in him, but under the pressure of the Jews, he had to do something. And also, as history records, the pressure from his wife. And we all know the outcome of this sixth trial. Under the pressure of the Jews, Pilate, looking for a way out of the whole mess, under this feast of the governor, they were allowed to release a prisoner to the people. And Pilate chose that it would either be Jesus or Barabbas, a notorious criminal. And we all know their, cho their choice. So Pilate condemned Jesus to be put to death on the cross. All the Jewish trials were conducted at night, and each was not even a legal court until it got to the Sanhedrin. It was all done in the cloak of darkness, and there was no justice or even legality in what the Jews did. And I'm sure they did it this all through the night from the arrest to the first trials so that the people wouldn't know anything about it until it reached a Roman court. That way the people would wake up and it would just be a matter of fact that Jesus had committed treason against Rome and they could blame Rome for the whole thing. That somehow by doing this they felt that their hands would be clean of the whole, the whole issue. So the whole thing from arrest to conviction and crucifixion of Jesus was exactly what Satan wanted. Satan figured that he would win with the death of Jesus. But little did the Jews or Satan realize that by crucifying Jesus, they had started the ultimate beginning, the ushering in of the new law. That by the death of Jesus, prophecy had been fulfilled and salvation for mankind was now possible. I know that everyone knows the account of the arrest and trial of Jesus, but the deeper and more I studied, realized that we probably didn't know the whole story. This sermon was probably more of a Paul Harvey format. Remember Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story when he was on the radio? Well, I thought it was important to tell the rest of this story concerning the arrest and conviction of Jesus. I know I had to go through the accounts within the gospel rather quickly. We kind of pushed for a little bit of time. But I wanted to point out how this was all done against Jewish law, that it was done under the cover of darkness, and that it was done through a series of kangaroo courts, and how the Jews did this all illegally. But through it all, Jesus stood firm. He was not belligerent, spiteful. He was honest and he gave his honest answers, but he stood through firm through all the abuse. Jesus knew the whole process was a joke, but Jesus knew what was his fate. Jesus knew that being the Son of God, he was, in to, endure, was to endure this as a lamb to the slaughter. This was all prophesied, and Jesus knew what he must do. 
in the garden before his arrest, we read where God sent an angel to strengthen him, to give him comfort in what was about to happen. Jesus knew his father's will. So what's the end result and outcome of this rest of the story? Simply that at some point we're all faced with some trial in our life that we, don't, that we feel just isn't fair. That we are somehow being picked on or that we don't deserve what's happening to us. We may even, we may even pray that this cup may pass from us, that we wouldn't have to go through what we're having to go through. That God may get us out of whatever it is that we're facing. God does have compassion. He does have compassion on us as Christians. And if we must suffer, whatever it is that we're suffering, whatever trial it is in our lives, then so be it. But not what we need to know that the Father is with us the whole time. I've used this example before. I, I, I think it's one of the best examples. It's like parents with kids, especially little kids, or especially once there's something about becoming a grandparent. It just changes everything, but changes your whole aspect. But take that of a sick child, and you've got to take them to the doctor. And the cure is something simple, like a shot of antibiotics or some other drug. What the child sees is that big needle, and it's going to hurt. What the parent sees is the cure and what the child needs, to, needs in order to get better. So the parent holds the child saying, it's going to be okay. It'll be all right. It'll be over in a second. So we hold the child in our arms, comforting them until it's all over. Then, maybe it's a matter of minutes, or maybe it's the next day, it's all better. They got past the shot, and they're on their way to being well again. And just like a child, after it's all over, they totally forget how terrible they thought that shot was going to be. And soon they're back up and playing as though nothing ever happened. I get a lot of shots. I'm just here to tell you, I get a lot of shots. I can vouch for you. I can understand why kids, but anyway, <laughs> I still get scared of them. <laughs> but just as the parent with the child, I know that my God is with me through whatever life throws at me. That will all be over in a matter of mere minutes as though it never happened, and that my God is always with me, always there for me. So I guess, in closing, if, you know, if you're experiencing any of these trials, or maybe even you've fallen for temptation of the world, and you need that compassion and forgiveness that only God can provide, or maybe you've come to know that Jesus is the only begotten Son, of God, that he came to this cruel world and died on that cross for our sins, and that you need that salvation that only you can get through putting him on through baptism, then this invitation is for you. If you're in need of the prayer at this or the prayers of the church, please come now as we stand and sing. <laughs>